friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today at the bottom of the hour, I'll be joined by my co-hostess, Lee Sneed of the Catholic Association, and we'll be talking to another Anglican bishop converting to Catholicism, the very interesting Dr. Gavin Ashenden. He was actually the former chaplain to the Queen of England. But before that, I'll be joined by my TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, as we check back in with Tom Farr of the Religious Freedom Institute. We wanted to have him on to talk about the fact that we are somehow participating in the Genocide Olympics. Now the Olympics going on in Beijing, all the while the Communist Party is um, stepping up its terrible oppression of religion, religious minorities and ethnic minorities, led, of course, by the poor Uyghurs in their concentration camps. Welcome to the show, Tom Farr. Great to be with you. We wanted to have you on, Tom, because you are, with your work at the Religious Freedom Institute, you are someone who has their finger on the pulse of of so many things across the world that as Americans, sometimes it's hard for us to, to keep our attention on. Right now, I'm referring specifically to what's going on in China. Many of us have decided that we were not really wanting to watch the, the Olympic Games in Beijing because of how ugly the situation is in China with the Communist Party and their treatment of, of lots of religious minorities and, and, and lots of different groups of people, but especially today, the Uyghurs, the terrible treatment they're receiving at the hands of the, of the, of the Communist Party. So we wanted to get your impression of all this and, and especially to remind our listeners of just how bad things are in China with people like the Uyghurs. Delighted to help to help people understand that because it is so important. So please, Tom, could you give us um, sort of a thumbnail sketch of the Uyghur situation in China, the the designation of genocide that that's been done, the official designation of genocide, and what that means, please. Sure. This, unfortunately, has been going on for some years. I sometimes think that people wake up to it and think that, wow, this is new and, and it's addressed sometimes as if it were new, but it's it's not new. I can remember about three years ago being in a civil society event and where I was speaking at the United Nations and complaining about this and someone from the Chinese embassy at the United Nations stood up and said, no, these are not internment camps. These are uh, vocational training camps. And that was the first time I'd heard that lie. <laughs> and had an opportunity to say what I thought of it there at that large gathering. And it is a lie. The, the, what is going on here, in my view, is one element of a larger policy by the current president, Xi Jinping of China, which fits uh, in the whole. It's not an outlier. It's not an unfortunate thing that just happens to be happening to this group of people, although it is. I mean, the victims are experiencing terrible things, but it's part of a larger policy, is my point. What is happening is that in the western Xinjiang province of China, where an ethnic group of Muslim people, for the most part, live in Xinjiang province, the Uyghur Muslims. So, in part, this is ethnic, but it is also in large part religious. And that is to say that these people, because of their religious beliefs as well as their ethnicity, are targeted by the Chinese for, in effect, brainwashing, pressuring them to change, abandon their religious beliefs to become a different kind of Chinese citizen. And they are being tortured and imprisoned if they don't do this. Parents are being taken away from children, fathers from families, mothers as well. I have personally been at congressional testimonies where a colleague sitting next to me was a woman who had escaped from 
Xinjiang province from the internment camps and told her story of brutality, of rape, of torture, and had managed to get away from this, but her family is still in that province. So the bottom line is that Xi Jinping and the Chinese are brutalizing up to and possibly more than a million Chinese Uyghur Muslims in internment camps, in effect in concentration camps. They are not extermination camps such as we saw in Germany during the Holocaust, so far as we know, but where you have torture and executions going on, you're getting pretty close to that. And the fact that the Chinese do this kind of thing in less volume to other people, uh, of China, such as the Falun Gong and others, their policies toward the Tibetan Buddhists tells you that it's part of something larger. So for people that are hearing this for the first time or haven't focused on it, this is this is serious. This isn't just some isolated human rights violation by a, a group of people that should cause you not to turn on your television for the Olympics. Now, Tom, the, the designation of genocide is a very specific gen, uh, designation. What is it and how does it apply to the to what the Chinese communist government is doing to the Uyghurs? Well, of course, uh, the genocide designation came out of the Holocaust. It came out uh, uh, in, in the guise of the Genocide Convention, which said, in effect, never again, whenever we have the attempt to destroy a people in any number of ways, and the international community names this as genocide, consequences will flow. Now, that has not, strictly speaking, by the entire uh, community, the United Nations, so far as I know, has not declared this a genocide. They should, but of course, China sits on the Security Council, as does Russia, so that will prevent that from happening. But the United States, under the prior government, under the prior administration of President Trump and Secretary Mike Pompeo, and the current administration of uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken, have both declared this to be a genocide as understood in the international conventions. That alone should tell you, I mean, there are not many things that those two administrations agreed on, including in foreign policy. But on this, they did agree. It is impossible to ignore what the Chinese are doing here. It is an attempt to wipe out a group of people by a variety of means, in this case, much more, in some cases, much more subtle technological means that are being adopted by the Chinese. But it's genocide nonetheless, make no mistake about it. One of the elements of the oppression that the government is perpetrating on the Uyghurs is forced sterilization. And that's something I think that people can really understand when it comes to the term genocide, right? Yes, indeed. I mean, it's an attempt. You, you want to prevent a group of people from reproducing themselves. You don't want to just put them in, you know, kill them as the Nazis did. But it, as I say, the, these are more sophisticated 21st century techniques. But the goal is the same. And of course, totalitarian governments are generally speaking defined by the capacity to do this kind of thing. In this case, a communist rather than a Nazi government. So it's brutal. It's terrible for sterilization, the torture of people, the use of coercive DNA testing so that you can keep track of people that aren't even in these camps. Um, there are a whole variety of things that are going on here which are truly horrible and no one in conscience should do anything, it seems to me, to support this. Tom, I heard the congressional testimony of the Uyghur woman that you mentioned and it was certainly heartbreaking and it definitely sounds far more like these are concentration camps than simply vocational training camps when you're talking about forced labor, shaved heads, rapes, forced abortion, sterilization, and yet, you know, we all would love to just tune in and watch the Olympics and uh, enjoy the skiing and skating and bobsledding, but but it, it's hard to just tune in without without this in mind. And I know your colleague Eric Patterson recently penned a piece where he drew a parallel between the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and this year's Olympics in Beijing. Can you tell us a little bit about this piece and you know what the real issue is that China's hosting the games? in the first place? Sure. It's a great comparison. 
for a number of reasons. One is, of course, that they're both totalitarian governments and they both had these terrible genocidal policies. The 1936 Olympics occurred in Berlin, and as Eric pointed out in his piece, there was an attempt on the part of some Americans to boycott those Olympics. Those attempts failed. Out of it came, among other things, uh, Jesse Owens, the uh, African-American uh, racer who put the lie on the on the ground, so to speak, uh, to the notion of Aryan supremacy at the outset of the uh, of the Nazi regime. But you know, I think this is a very good comparison for a lot of reasons. One is that back in 1936, uh, not only did we not have the internet, we didn't have television. The way people knew about things was to read about them a few days later in the newspaper or through the radio, and of course, I suppose, through the telegram. The point is that the awareness of what was going on in Germany in 1936 was far lower than in 2022 what is going on in China. Uh, most people didn't know. There was certainly an awareness of the terrible anti-Semitism that was beginning to bubble up, but you still hadn't had crystal knocks the night uh, where the Jews were literally grabbed and thrown out. I think that was 1938, a couple of years later. The concentration camps in Germany did exist. They had started with the uh, coming to power of Hitler in 1933, but they were, at this point, for the most part, work camps. They hadn't turned into the the terrible extermination camps that they would of the Jews and, and the gypsies and others that they became. So, you know, there was, and this, the president, President Roosevelt at the time wasn't really seized with this. Not a lot of politicians were. We don't have that excuse now. We don't, everyone in the world has at least anyone who has access to the internet or a phone, and that's a lot of people in the world. There's no excuse not to know about this. I think we've become sort of inured to violence and brutality because it happens all over the world. We know about persecution. We know about terrible things happening in North Korea and elsewhere. But here it is right before us, and, and uh, I'm not suggesting that not watching your television or doing other things can turn this around. I am calling for people to be aware of what's going on in China and to put pressure on our own government to do more. I mean, it's one thing to declare genocide. It's quite another to take steps, and these are not easy steps to take, but uh, we owe these people, the Uyghur Muslims, um, the best that we can do to get them out of this terrible situation. And I hope we'll have a chance to talk about what I mentioned in the, in the beginning. And this is not the most horrible things are happening to the Uyghur Muslims, but it isn't only happening to them as part of a larger policy of, of China, which extends to other Chinese religious minorities. But it also extends to Hong Kong and it extends to, I think, China's overall policy in the world. I don't think these are isolated policies within China. Tom, I was just about to ask you about that, because over the past several years, we've seen you know, an increase in the suppression of religion. And in fact, the Communist Party passed a resolution of some sorts, maybe you could tell us about it, saying that religious organizations must adhere to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, observe the Constitution, laws, regulations, et cetera, et cetera, adhere to the directives on religions in China and implementing the values of socialism. So can you give us other examples? Um, you mentioned the crackdown in Hong Kong, the imprisonment of Jimmy Lai, of course. But what, what's been happening to other religious minorities in China? We've heard about bulldozing of churches and such. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Keep in mind that this is a very old story under the Communist Party in China. During the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong, roughly from uh, uh, in the in the mid-60s to the mid-70s, there really was an attempt on the part of the Communist Party literally to kill religion or to kill those religions that offered any kind of fidelity to something greater than the communist state. And of course, that meant Islam. It meant some forms of Buddhism. It certainly meant all forms of Christianity and Judaism and so forth. There was literally an attempt to throw all of these groups in jail and to kill them, to torture them. It didn't work because you can't rip religion out of the human soul. And 
tens of millions of Chinese died during the Cultural Revolution. Well, fast forward to 2022, or at least to 20, it was 2013 when Xi Jinping came to power. During that period in between Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping, the Chinese weren't a democracy developing, trying to figure out how to develop religious freedom. They actually have it in their in their uh, constitution that there is religious freedom in, in China. And if that doesn't tell you that you need to read further in a constitution, don't just accept what it says, nothing will. The reality is they have been developing the policy against religious minorities in China throughout the existence of the Communist Party and the People's Republic from 1948 and 49 on. What we're seeing now, in my view, is a second cultural revolution using 21st century techniques and its purpose is to control religion and what you have asked about i think that was maureen asking the question is how is it that china is now beginning to go to school on all of the policies that they have tried during the last several decades under all of the predecessors of xi jinping and put them to work to absorb them into the Communist Party. I mean, that is what we're seeing. The word that the scholars and the policymakers use for it, and the Chinese themselves, is sinocization of religious minorities. So it really doesn't matter which one it is. There are a few that are sort of exempt from this. They're the ones that tend to be less otherworldly, if I can put it that way. Some versions of Confucianism, some versions of Taoism, and this isn't intended to be a criticism of them, but they aren't. They don't pose the kind of threat to the Chinese state that the Muslims, the Tibetan Buddhists, the Christians, the Protestants, and the Catholics do. So what must happen under this policy that you mentioned is an incorporation, an integration of Catholicism, let's talk about that, into the Chinese state. Well, how do you do that? You begin with changing the Bible. It may be difficult for people to believe this, but the Chinese are taking steps actually to change the text, particularly of the New Testament, to change the translations of the Bible, to uh, incorporate bishops and priests into what has been there for decades. It's called the, um, the Chinese Patriotic Association, which is nothing more than an arm of the Communist Party, of the Politburo. And so the sinicization of the church is to ensure that nothing is being preached. Think of mass. Think of your own mass that you go to, if you're Catholic or if you're Protestant or anything else, whatever holy service you go to. And instead of hearing what you're accustomed to hearing, if you're Christian, it's about Jesus Christ. You're going to begin seeing pictures of the uh, of Xi Jinping, the president of China. You're going to begin singing hymns to him. You're going to be hearing, instead of the regular liturgy of the word, alterations of the Bible. Why would anybody do this unless either they're idiots? Uh, I, I think of the great phrase by C.S. Lewis uh, of of a guy is either he's a lunatic, like on the form of being a scrambled egg, he was talking about Jesus, or he was who he said he is, which is the Lord of the universe, the Son of God. Well, the Chinese have chosen here. They believe they can change Catholicism and Tibetan Buddhism into arms of the Chinese state. And here's the tragedy. We are allowing this to happen. We, the, the Vatican is allowing this to happen. I'm sad to say that, but I think it's true. It is not, in other words, simply these horrible tortures of people. It is that. But it's part of a policy to absorb religion within the Communist Party so that there will be no more Tiananmen squares, so that there will be no more resistance to the Communist Party because that's where the resistance they know will happen. It will come from religion. So bulldozing churches, doing what they've done all along, taking those bishops of the Catholic Church who are preaching otherwise and putting them under house arrest, making them disappear. This is part
part of a larger policy, and we're letting it happen. Do you think, Tom, that the the policy that the Vatican has uh, has developed with China, which has raised lots of red flags for the reasons that you cite, do you think that they are that the Vatican is thinking this is the more prudent course, that this is the way that they can establish some kind of relationship with the with Catholics in China? What what is the what is the best case uh, best way to look at uh, the most generous way to look at their at this uh, their policies? I think you've just made it, and and indeed that is the most charitable interpretation to put. And for those who don't know, the Vatican made three years ago, I think it was, an agreement which has been renewed that on on the choice of bishops in the Roman Catholic Church, and in effect, it brings the Communist Party into the process of choosing Catholic bishops. Uh, it purportedly, we don't know because we haven't seen the text, but purportedly it, it keeps the Holy Father involved in this in some fashion. It's unclear exactly why. But look, look what's happened. I mean, and, and again, the, the, the stated reason is to make the Church one again in China. The Church has been divided since the 1950s between the Catholic Patriotic Church and the so-called Underground Church. Bring it together. Well, surely that makes sense to anyone who's a Catholic. But is that what has happened? And the answer is a resounding no. Catholics are demoralized in China. Churches are being bulldozed. Catholic masses are showing pictures of Xi Jinping instead of Jesus Christ. I mean, this cannot be what the Vatican wants. And I, I, I want to avoid being too critical. I don't want to criticize the Holy Father. I consider myself a, a very devout Catholic. But the <clears throat> we're talking about Vatican diplomacy. The, the Holy See is not a great power. It is a moral power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is the greatest moral power in the world. Its job is to not do diplomacy like Tony Blinken or Mike Pompeo did diplomacy or the American Foreign Service. Its job is to speak truth to power. It is failing to do this. It is standing by and allowing all the things that we've just talked about to go unremarked. The Holy Father has been heroic in its con- in his condemnation of the of the torture of Christians and non-Christians around the world. But there has been basically silence about this terrible thing that's happening to the Uyghurs. How do you explain that? I don't know, but it, it needs to stop. We need, the Holy See needs to withdraw this agreement. And I think Benedict Rogers had a piece uh, a couple of days ago in which he, he worries out loud that what we've seen is the withdrawal of the Charge, or I think it's the Charge in Taiwan. And he worries, he's a China watcher, that it may be preliminary to the Holy See actually withdrawing its diplomatic status from Taiwan, which it has held since the Communist Party came in. I hope Ben is wrong about that, but I worry because I can't explain what it is that the Vatican is doing. I urge all of us not only to pray for the Uyghurs and the Muslims uh, of China, but to pray for the Catholics of China, to pray for Jimmy Lai, whom you mentioned, who was imprisoned in in Hong Kong today because he is a devout Catholic who ran a newspaper because he is Catholic. Talk about the free exercise of religion needed in a country. He criticized the Chinese regime from Hong Kong. And for his courage in doing this, he is now serving a term in who knows how long he will be there in in prison in China. He's a hero. He's a prisoner of conscience. He's someone that we should be praying for. And to the extent that we can put pressure on the Chinese now, and the Hong Kong, the government of Hong Kong, America should be doing it for this man as well as all the others who are suffering. I pray for him every night and and for all the Chinese. I didn't watch the the last games in um, in Beijing because I had just returned from China with our adopted daughter, and when I I, I was I was astounded. I only saw the surface of China, obviously, in, in a 17-day trip, an adoption trip. But I, I thought I saw enough to, to feel very strongly a, a great sympathy for the people of China, who everyone we met was so so warm and, and very human. They were very human, very much our brothers and sisters. And I could not believe that they had been living, you know, with that terrible communist 
system for so long, and and that was some years ago. I've, I've, I think maybe ten years ago since the last, or or twelve since the since the last games in China, and things have go, have only gotten tremendously worse for the people of China. I, and I'm surprised when I when I when I when I see um, chatter on the internet about about the Beijing games. I'm I'm really surprised that people could take it lying down. That our I'm surprised that our country is there. That we have sent you know representatives um, from the United States after having that designated them as a as a genocide state. So thank you so much, Tom Farr, um, from for joining us. Where can our listeners learn more about the work of the Religious Freedom Institute? You can go to our website, which is RFI. Dot org, and uh, you can uh, maneuver yourself there to see the things that we do. We defend religious freedom around the world. We are in physically, uh, we have an office in Iraq where we do our Middle East work. We are present in other ways in uh, South Asia and India, Pakistan. We have worked in Afghanistan. We're working in Africa and in obviously in the Far East and China. But I, I want everyone to know that we we are spending about half our resources on religious freedom in the United States on the proposition that if we lose this here, if we lose the appreciation of what we've been talking about here in our own country, how can we convince others of its value to them? Mm-hmm. China's a tough nut to crack, but there are other countries that need this almost as much. So RFI.org, we would be delighted to hear from any of your listeners, and I personally would be happy to, to discuss this with anyone. If I might just say, we haven't said a word about the American businesses and corporations who That's are spending right. their money in China. And I think this is so important. This is where Americans can have an impact, and I'm not calling for boycotts, but I have a feeling that some of these, these groups just never hear from anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking now of American corporations, except, you know, their boards uh, and their shareholders who want them to make more money. Well, we, you know, there's nothing wrong with making money, but we, we all should, I think, distinguish between the kinds of things that we allow to be done with our money and those that we don't want. We should all be aware of that. And there's some good Catholic ways to do that, too. Well, thank you very much, Tom Farr. There's an idea for a future. There's an idea for a future podcast. How should Catholics invest, and others uh, invest their funds in order to avoid some of this stuff? And there are ways to do it. Well, that's a great idea, and we'll have you on very soon to tell us about that. I, I completely agree with you. The corporations are definitely turning a blind eye um, and for profit. So, thank you very much, Tom Farr of the Religious Freedom Institute. You're welcome. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Lee Sneed. We are happy to introduce to the program Dr. Gavin Ashenden. He's the former chaplain to the Queen of England, who had a remarkable conversion to the Catholic faith just a few years ago. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gavin. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ashenden. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be with you. So are you joining us from England today, or are you in another part of the world? No, I'm, I have a small house in Normandy, but it's a, it's a mill by a riverside uh, with a chapel in the garden, which some rich French Catholic does square. But um, it's, a, it's a beautiful place near Mont Saint-Michel, which makes it, I, I think, puts us in the shadow of really quite a holy place. So do you plan and del- delicious lamb? Absolutely delicious lamb. Yes, yeah, so, although French lamb is very expensive, but um, but but as delicious as it is expensive. Yeah. We wanted to talk to you. You you present a very interesting case uh, for Catholics um, as a person of of such high stature in, in the Anglican Church in England. Uh, even though you were so high up and 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 such an important and integral part of the Anglican faith, yet you stepped away to join the Catholic faith. The image that came to me quite early on. It, it's a bit ridiculous and it's quite childlike, but nonetheless, it was the image in my head. I, I felt like a, an acrobat at the top of um, a trapeze acrobat at the top of a circus in a big top, uh, going from one, one one swing to another. The, the uh, to, to get from from one swing to the other, you you. The reason I, I went was because the, the one I was on was giving way, and, and therefore it was obvious I was going to go to the one that wasn't giving way. So it, it was as if Anglicanism wasn't holding up, and, and Catholicism was nearby, and so the question was, 
should I should I jump across? You know, I read a piece about you and of you leading up to the show today, and um, I was really struck by one thing. I think it was in the National Catholic Register about how you felt a personal call, like to personally heal the the fissure. You know, after you know the the, the failed ecumenical experiment that you talk about, that was a personal call that you felt. And can you talk a little bit more about that? About how sort of taking that on on your own? <laughs> I mean, it's just really, really big. Well, it's partly because for the whole of my life I've been involved in ecumenism. I can't tell you how many committees I'd sat on. I was also involved in the charismatic movement, and I was quite impressed by the fact that that the the unity of spirit that that, that Jesus calls us to is, first of all, an existential personal thing for one's own soul. Um, But um, Anglicanism was an experiment. Um, I, I was very struck by... Uh, about 20 years ago, the man who was my bishop, we'd just come out of a really highly charged meeting that essentially uh, had seen the the, 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 the liberal progressives uh, slam the doors on conservative evangelicals and conservative Anglo-Catholics. And, and he threw up his hands in horror and he said, this is the end of a 500-year-old ecumenical experiment, which was Anglicanism. And I thought, well, you know, this is... I said, Bishop John, don't, don't be so miserable. <laughs> don't be so pessimistic. I'm sure you're wrong. But as time went by, you know how it is sometimes, um, particularly with the Holy Spirit, words get stuck, or, you know, a word, a sentence, an encounter, something something gets stays with you and never it doesn't go away. So this thing went stayed with me, and I began to see that Anglicanism had been an experiment. Uh, it had tried to bring the best together of uh, a desire to reform and to clean up the church, but at the same time not, not break the stem completely. Um, and there are circumstances in which it might have worked, but it went too far one way. It broke its Catholic umbilical cord in all, by, by preferring the progressive renewing agenda. And, and that betrayed, in a sense, its genius or its charism or its own calling. So for 500 years, it has managed to steer a way that allowed some form of bridge to take place between the Reformed and the Catholic tradition. But in my lifetime, in the last 25 years, it gave that up. It, it broke, it stopped doing its job. And at that point, I, I thought, well, the ecumenism, the, the healing of the church that Jesus calls to, which we're all mandated to pursue, um, if it's failing institutionally, should I become Catholic, it, it, it succeeds personally. So it seems to me that one of, one of the tiny ways I could make up for the failure of an ecclesial experiment was to was to be obedient myself, and and if one has to choose, you know, if there's this gap between a, you know a chasm opening up, and you have to choose one side or the other if you're not going to fall down the chasm. And it was perfectly obvious that the call was to come home, not to continue with the Reformation. I love that. Um, another thing that struck me was your really gloriously gorgeous heroic efforts to get Bibles to those oppressed uh, under the Soviet regime. And then I thought, I was struck again when I read that you felt after your conversion, this seems like a more of a, a reconciliation, right, than more of a than the conversion um, to the church, that you felt this freedom to finally speak about Mary and the saints and these figures that you've had this personal relationship with, but that you had to, felt you had to speak about furtively that those traditions and what you were trying to do to help um, those without access to the Bible or medicine. Well, it's certainly true that without Our Lady and the Saints, you are you are living a suppressed life spiritually. But I think I I, I found a different the way I've explained it is that um, I think I would use the word conversion. I know some people try and avoid it because it's got slightly colonial overtones and and uh, you know I was wrong now I'm right. Um, but I I think that the way I see it is in that. Rather like that pattern in St. John's Gospel, where a man born blind comes to Jesus, and Jesus lays hands on him to heal him, and, and he sees a bit. You know, he sees people. He, he moved from darkness to shapes moving. This is extremely exciting, um, but, but he's not there yet. And I'm, I'm afraid, I hope people don't find this offensive, but, but I think in my, in my evangelical Anglican days, I, I saw shapes moving. When I became a Catholic, I saw clearly there were a whole series of things that were off radar I hadn't seen. Uh, I, I hadn't uh, completely understood the extraordinary role, the intermediary role Our Lady 
fields, I, uh, exercises. I hadn't understand. It was only when I began to read about the Eucharistic miracles and I went, well, how lucky am I to live after 1994? Because before 1994, you know, science had not come to the aid of, of Aquinas and his Aristotelian categories, you know, we now know that what Aquinas was trying to explain by transubstantiation has been proved by the analyses into, into miraculously bleeding hosts. Now, anyone who tried to invent this uh, sort of ex nihilo as like, you know, like a novel, would, they'd be laughed out of court, but, but science did it. We, you know, we didn't do it. The hosts bled. We had scientific instruments. They, they discovered they had white blood cells in the living body. The scientists said, where did you get this stuff? Have you been grave robbing? What's going on? So once you discover, I think with the Eucharistic miracles and, and the apparitions of Our Lady, that you, this is all true. You're, you enter into an entirely different kind of Christian framework. And I think conversion is the only word you can use. Um, I've always thought that, that, that Protestantism was a bit like living without time. Uh, you just forgot what happened in the first three quarters of your life. Um, you know, it starts at 1520, and there's very little between 1520 and the Book of Acts. Wow. To be a Catholic is to is to is to recover your memory and your identity, and it's an identity that starts with Jesus and is mediated by the apostles, and it grows organically and truly. And and the pro dear Protestants say, look at an acorn, and they look at the oak tree and say, I don't see any connection with this at all. What have these two things got to do with each other? And you have to say to them, look, if you don't understand how this acorn grew into the oak tree, you 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 can't understand the church, and that's why you keep inventing it, reinventing it every generation. So, I'm afraid I think to get from the acorn to the oak tree to see to see our, our Lord's miraculous mass. To see Our Lady, I mean, it, it's a conversion. It's a change of frame of reference. It's a big thing. You you describe uh, this move that that you had to make of conversion as um, you, you went because the Anglican Church was a big umbrella organization that that was able to hold for some time in tension different uh, strains of Christianity, and it was able to do that. I assume that you're saying it was it was uh, able to do that for many hundreds of years. But something changed, right? Something changed, and and I feel that you've referred to it in other. Other, and other things I've read about you and things that you've said is that it, it, it's not so much that it uh, it closed off a, a couple of those strains and I said no conservatives and um, that that very high church aspect and and uh, Anglic Catholic Anglican uh, side of things is no longer we're no longer going with that I feel like you're saying it became post-christian no I, I think you're right uh, and and one of the arguments, it's not an argument, one of the insights one might use is to say that actually it was the Reformation that produced the militant atheists of the 20th century. How did it do that? Well, it started off by saying, everything you do is personal, not corporate. So as long as you feel it personally, it's okay. Then it said, it's all about how you, un how you personally interpret the Bible. Well, that, that's okay, but you know, maybe you suddenly you'll stop believing in things. It's the autonomy of the self and the critical mind. And as, it, as, as autonomy and the critical mind developed, it, it decided by itself that actually the, the things that the Bible were talking about were inconceivable or too difficult. So it moved into a kind of, you know, act, act, you know the 18th century was, a, was a, the distant clockmaker God who, who never got involved. Um, because if you don't have a personal relationship with God, he, he would be distant and not involved. And, and, and you know, then science came along and said, okay, we can explain how the clock works. So, well, okay, I believe in science, not God. And then if you believe in science and not God, you become a militant atheist. Now, um, the, the problem with reformed churches is they got carried away by the thing they started. The moment they started this autonomous, cerebral, uh, personal and intellectual journey, which is unaccountable to the memory of the church, uh, well, where, how do you find the break as you go down that hill? And it, it became, I think, that the, the, the 20th century, we, if we move now from historical dynamic to spiritual dynamic, one of the things that happened in the 20th century was the most appalling demonic assault on the church. Pope Leo XIII had a vision of it when, in, in 1884 when the uh, composer prayer to St. Michael could be said after every mass because he said in the coming century, you know, the devil's going to be unleashed on the church and it's going to... 
it's going to be appalling. Well, I know people say, you know, when did that hundred years end? But as far as I can see, you know, it hasn't ended. It's it's speeding up and intensifying. And so this great assault on the church from left and right, fascism and communism, which devastated the church and produced more martyrs in the 20th century than the church had accumulated in all the centuries before. Well, it's still continuing. It, you know, fascism appears to have disappeared, as far as I can tell. You know, there are very few nationalist right-wing movements left anymore. Um, but all the energy is in a virulent communism that it's Christianity. And it's that new cultural communism that has emerged so powerfully in the last 20 or 30 years. And the first target they make for every time are the Christians, whether it's to do with, with, with sex or worship or freedom of thought, or, you know, we're their first target. That makes me suggest that there's a kind of spiritual agenda there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're speaking to Dr. Gavin Ashenden. He's the former chaplain to the Queen of England. I can't help but think of you and uh, think of, doc- of um, St. John Henry Newman at the same time i'm a huge i'm a huge fan of his and his apologia to me is a is a is a masterwork uh, of conversion and also of what you're talking about i think he also saw that anglicanism was accepting a liberalism in religion which would which would eventually lead you to say that you know religion is a simple personal choice that you know, that doesn't uh, indicate the truth in any way. It's a simple liking, like liking a flavor of ice cream. Do you do you think of St. John Henry Newman when you think of your own conversion? Oh, well, um, in the sense that he saw what I came to see much more quickly and much more clearly and, and, is, and is a saint. Um, whereas, I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a minnow, but he was a, he was, had a most enormous stature. Well, but, but what's similar between us is that we both tried to make Anglicanism work. We both accepted that God had placed us here. And wouldn't it be wonderful that Anglicanism could somehow be reconciled to the Mother Church? Um, and he tried with, with wit and with intelligence and with scintillating theology and, with, uh, and that it came a, came a point when actually the Anglican Church turned around and repudiated it, they were not, we're, we're not going your direction. They just won't do it. And that was also partly true for me. As I became clearer that the direction the Anglican Church was going in in terms of adopting all the values of the spirit of the age, uh, and um, people began to become more and more uncomfortable with me. Uh, and, uh, but it was clear that you, you either had to come back to the apostolic faith the mind of the church com- beautifully comprised by the magisterium uh, or else you moved away from the faith and so uh, there comes a point when you have to make the choice um, and, and we both found that that moment of choice came and there's a great deal of pain in losing behind what we'd loved and known especially friends um, and, and I knew perfectly well that becoming a Catholic was not going to be easy I wouldn't find lots of friends it wouldn't be comfortable but it would be true and real and what God wanted so that'll do nicely uh, Dr. Ashenden, you must be very aware as, as a convert to Catholicism, a recent convert. And I find, in my experience, my own husband's a convert uh, from Judaism. And I find that converts are so beautifully intense about the faith. They experience it in a, in a, in a very mature way, in a very adult way. They're very, they're very thoughtful, and, and, and it's, a, it's wonderful to watch. So you must be looking at the Catholic Church in that very thoughtful way, uh, meeting it in a, in a, in a new, as, as, a new, as a new member. Are you worried that you'll fall between two stools when you move over to the Catholic Church? Um, are you worried that some of those same cultural forces that hurt the Anglican Church are also hurting the Catholic Church? Uh, so uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, I, I was perfectly well aware that the same forces are attacking the Catholic Church. After all, it has become clear to me that this was a metaphysical and a cosmic fight. Uh, this is essentially it's partly about culture, partly politics, partly psychology, partly perception, partly personal taste. But at the back of it, it's a spiritual assault on the church. And so, of course, it will affect the Catholic Church. And people often say, ha, 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 didn't you realize you were going out of the frying pan into the fire? And I say, well, of course I knew that. <laughs> but the point is that you know, it, it's a fight for the kingdom of heaven. It's a fight for Jesus. But the fight was lost in the Anglican Church and could no longer be won. The, the real fight, the center of the battle, is the Catholic Church. So it's no surprise to me at all to discover that the same things are taking place Um, And what I want to say is, hey, guys, I know what happens if you pursue that line of thought. It's death. Uh, It's toxic. It's death. Um, Actually, you know, you're following the wrong leader. (laughs) And, And we know how this plays out. In fact, it was the American Episcopalians who first showed the English Anglicans. And they said to us, hey, guys, don't do this. Do not swallow feminism. 
or, or, um, or, or and do not follow social activism as a kind of raison d'etre. Uh, but the Church of England said, no, no, we, that, we, we don't, you know, we're not going to listen to that. It did exactly the same. And I now want to say to the Catholic Church, look, you tried liberation theology, you tried soft Marxism, you tried Pakamama in the 1960s and 70s. None of that worked. You, you should know better already. But if you don't know better, look at Anglicanism. Look what happened. Look how the faith got completely taken over by an alien ideology. Don't do it. Now, the, re- the people still can't hear that. And again, I think that's because a, it's a matter of spiritual enlightenment, engagement, perception. So no, it's a no surprise to me at all that the fact is the same in slightly different ways. It's sad. I would like to have the last 10 or 20 years of my life in a, in a non-crisis situation. But I was born in the same year as St. Augustine. He was born in 354, and I was born in 1954. And it always occurred to me that as he died with the vandals at the gates and the kind of the collapse of his culture, I thought, well, it would be very odd if that's what happened to me. Interestingly enough, I think that's what's going to happen. I, you know, my culture's collapsing. So it's a shame, but all Jesus called us to fight for him wherever we were in time and space. So we have a big fight in our hands. Those are wonderful words to end on, Dr. Ashenden. I'm really glad that the church can claim you as a son and that you come with this wonderful, rich experience of of meeting that terrible cultural moment we're in, which is the the post-Christian culture, where people think they understand that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. (laughs) When, When that's not true at all, we haven't even begun to try it. So thank you very much for joining us, and I hope that you'll join us again one day. It's very kind of you. Thank you for having me. It's been great to meet you and and, uh, and a blessing on all your listeners and viewers. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, which will speak to us about the path of true happiness with words that are quite shocking and countercultural in every age. The path to lasting joy, indicates, is the life of faith, one in which we place our trust in God rather than in money, pleasure, in entertainment, or in the esteem of others. It's what's called the Sermon on the Plain, which begins with St. Luke's version of the Beatitudes, which Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount features eight aspects of the path to Beatitude. In the Sermon on the Plain, he focuses on four and contrasts them clearly to four woes. The divergence shows that speaking about the path to true happiness, contrasting his ways with the ways of the world, was one of Jesus' central messages, regularly developed with different nuances. But his essential teaching remains the same. Real path to joy, the way to have life to the full forever, is not just different, but in fact opposite to what those infected by spiritual worldliness often presume. St. Luke introduces Jesus' four contrasts by saying, Raising his eyes toward his disciples, Jesus said, In other words, Jesus looks each of us straight in the eyes as he gives us this teaching. Let's receive what Jesus says, not as words to others or to everyone, but to you and me. The first contrast is, blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Versus, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Simply revolutionary, not just in Jesus' age, not just in our era, but in every epoch, to believe that we'll be happier if we're poor than rich. The point he's making is that those who are rich often place their faith, hope, and love in money and the things that money can buy. Those who are poor, on the other hand, often have no one or nothing to turn to but God. In terms of what really matters, their poverty turns out to be a blessing because it helps place their treasure in God. Jesus says that the rich are to be pitied because they've already received their consolation in the money and possessions they have in this world and often don't look for it in God and his promises in his kingdom. Today, many, including Christians, spend more time nourishing their hope to win the lottery than to win the eternal bonanza. Jesus says that these people are woeful because they think that the monopoly money and temporary houses on Park Avenue penthouses are more valuable than the Father's house and treasure. The second contrast is, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you'll be satisfied, versus, Woe to you who are filled now, for you'll be hungry. It's those who are really hungry who can genuinely pray the words, Give us today our daily bread because they learn to hunger and trust in God's fatherly care. Those who are full, who have no food worries, can often begin to take God's providence for granted, can stop even saying thanks to God for their food. One state helps bring us closer to God and to placing our foundation in Him. The other often turns our hearts away from Him. 
There are people who live to satiate their bodily appetites, obsessing about meals at restaurants, storing up precious wines in cellars with obese hearts at unearthly banquets, often ignoring those who don't even have crumbs in which to eat each day. Jesus warns them with a woe that even though they are now filled and fattened, one day they'll hunger for the things that matter most. Those who are blessed, on the other hand, are those who are hungry for the eternal wedding banquet, hungry for God, hungry for what God starves, hungry and thirsty for holiness more than bread and water, hungry to receive Jesus in the Eucharist more than they do sumptuous breakfasts. Those are the ones who will be satisfied. The third contrast is, Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Verses, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Those who are laughing now can begin to put their trust and happiness in their own wit or in a group of interesting and entertaining friends and experiences. Experiencing human contentment, they can easily have their desire for eternal happiness lessened. Those who are weeping, on the other hand, or entrusting their pain, sorrows, and intercessions to God, are those who will have the time of their eternal lives. This points to the truth that there are always people who want to make fun their God, who go from diversion to diversion, party to party, who don't take life seriously because they're living for the present moment, unaware that the present moment is passing. They try to escape from reality, insulating themselves from sadness and suffering as much as they can. They don't realize that there will be a time when the music will stop, when all the lights will be turned on, and they'll come to face their Creator, needing to give an account of how they've invested the talent of their time, either in caring for others or in carousing. The blessed, on the other hand, are those who weep now because they grieve with God the separation of others from Him over their true misfortune, over their and others' sins that have brought so much suffering and death into the world, over seeing Christ be crucified for the forgiveness of these sins, over so many living as if God doesn't exist, as if life doesn't have direction or meaning, over those who are unprepared for the final exam of life. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and the death of his friend Lazarus. The Blessed Mother wept in the apparitions of Our Lady of La Salette. St. Monica wept over her son Augustine. Jesus says that those who weep like this are blessed because one day they'll laugh. They'll laugh at how God has brought good out of evil, at, what, at how what seemed so foolish in the perspective of eternity now seems so wise. They'll laugh with the good thief and all those who have successfully bet Pascal's wager and won an eternal jackpot. The last contrast is, Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude and insult you, denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, versus woe to you when all speak well of you. He says that the false prophets, the spiritual terrorists and great villains of history, were similarly praised in their lifetime, but ended up facing judgment. The real heroes of eternity, the true prophets, were opposed, denounced, and even killed. But because they lived with total dependence on God, trusting in Him even and especially when it was hard, they're now rejoicing and leaping forever for joy. Jesus says that we're blessed when we're persecuted, when our lives and our speech are prophetic, when we announce to people God's revelation, both the consolations and the castigations. Such witness is called in Greek martyrion, martyrdom, for a very good reason, because it's a challenge to worldly ways of living and will bring us to some degree to share in Christ's own suffering to bring us the good news. To be a Christian is to be a prophet, and to be a prophet is to suffer for the gospel when the message of the gospel is not in conformity with the spirit of the age. Jesus is essentially saying, Blessed are the true prophets who live for God and for eternity, and woe to the false prophets who live for being praised by the mobs today rather than by God and the saints forever. The real question each of us needs to face is whether our values, our logic, our focus are like Jesus's or like the world's. Many of us have given the chance to be humanly rich like Jeff Bezos or spiritually wealthy like a poor old holy widow would say, show me the money. If given the choice between being the life of the party or someone who's mocked, misunderstood or maltreated because of our fidelity to Christ, most of us would say, party on. If given the choice between feasting or fasting, most of us would reply, I'll have the filet mignon medium rare and a glass of Merlot. But like the temptations Christ will over undergo in the desert, the devil often uses food, riches, and the promise of power or popularity to draw us away from God. This Sunday, Jesus describes for us a choice between two types of trust, genuine trust in God or a trust in the things that the devil can often manipulate to draw our hearts away from God. 
It's at Mass that we come poor to receive Jesus' riches, hungry to be fed, sorrowful and desiring to do reparation for our sins and those of the whole world, and seeking the strength to remain true even when we should have to suffer on account of the faith. As we prepare for Sunday, let's lift up our eyes and hearts with loving trust to Jesus, who will lift up his eyes to us, engage us in a life-changing, consequential conversation, try to set us on the path to eternal happiness as true prophets leading others onto that same narrow way. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 